Yeah, worship is quite a controversial topic, um, but I, I think people are thinking a lot about worship, which is encouraging to me. Um, you know, I would say in the last, you know, 20, 30 years, I'm very encouraged by a lot of energy and thinking and praying and discussion that's gone into the topic of worship, rather than just accepting without thinking about it the traditions that have been passed down and just sort of going through the motions. I would say, you know, one of the positive things about sort of y'all, you know, younger people rather than your parents' generation is wanting to take things seriously. Now, I do think authenticity becomes an idol real easily, and I don't think you can be authentic without the gospel. Um, that's the topic. You can think about that a little bit maybe if you want some time. Um, but I do think that there is an, an interest in not just going through the motions, and I think that's a really good thing. Um, you know, by way of just sort of setting you up for later, I, I think that postmodernism and um, sort of the changing cultural situation is really an opportunity for us to go back to the Bible and read it again with new questions and, and see if we've missed something. And I do think that there are certain things that the Bible has to say that we've sort of filtered out by reading it through modern, you know, um, presuppositions. And the postmodern situation gives us an opportunity to go back and say, man, have we missed something? And the idea about kind of holistic worship and encounter with God that's not just intellectual, that's not just emotional, that's not just about I want to do this and I just want to do this, that's not just about your will, is actually a very important theme biblically. Um, and so what I want us to do is to dig into a passage that I think deals with that very well. It's in Romans chapter 12. We'll read this passage, I'll pray, and then we'll, we'll dig into this. I think this is just a really helpful um, touchstone passage when we think about worship. <clears throat> Romans chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, at least the first verse is printed on the outline. Um, but you may want to look on with somebody. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Everybody there? Okay. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Let's pray together. Well, we pray that we would, in this seminar, get a bigger view of your mercies that demand that we offer all that we are to you. Lord, I pray that we would worship you joyfully, that we would um, have our hearts and our minds open to understand and to see through the eyes of faith your beauty in a way that would draw us from the pattern of this world, that would draw us from the way the culture tries to squeeze us, that would draw us away from the idols that lurk even in our own hearts, and would draw us to yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, um, I think it's important, you know, that we understand that the, the point of the Bible is that we would get it, as, as Brian said last night, that the, the truth and the beauty of Jesus would not just reside in our understanding, but would affect our whole being. God made us to be holistic people, um, not just um, brains, not just emotions, 
but holistic people. And this passage speaks to that. And it, it, it really is this sort of fundamental passage. Therefore, in view of God's mercy, and actually the Greek, it says mercy is plural. Um, the NIV, for some reason, makes that singular. But in view of God's mercies, which are manifold, uh, and which are described for us in great detail in the first 11 chapters of this book. You see, this is a therefore. The therefore. This is the conclusion after 11 chapters. If all of this stuff is true that Romans is talking about in the first 11 chapters, what should our response be? It should be to offer our whole bodies, though again, um, NIV translation is a little um, misleading here, I think. It, it really is your whole beings. It's not just talking about your physical bodies. It's your whole being. Offer your whole being, everything that you have, everything you are, offer it to God. And it is the only reasonable, um, this Greek word can be translated either logical or reasonable. It is your only reasonable um, response. If you really understand what God has done and who he is, the only reasonable way to live is, is to, to worship God with everything that we are. To not worship God makes no sense. That's why back in chapter 1 of Romans... Paul talks about how people that refused to give glory to God and instead gave it to other things, things that God made, like the sun and the moon and animals and all these sorts of things, that their, their minds were darkened because of the refusal of their will. They, they lived as insane people. But as the book of Romans goes on, you find out that it's not just those crazy people that don't know God that live as insane people. It's us. In chapter 3, there's all this stuff about no one seeks God, no one understands, all have, you know, turned away. And you look at that, if you look up all those passages, those are all quotes that Paul takes from the Old Testament. You look them up in their context, they're all talking about non-Jewish people. But Paul takes them all, strings them all together, and says this is true of those who have the law. This is true of God's people. And that's when he introduces chapter 4 of Romans, what it means to live by faith, to be justified by faith, which is what Brian's going to talk about tonight, Romans chapter 4. And then he goes on in chapter 5 and says, this is how, how this happens. The, the only reason that you would live by faith rather than live as insane people is because of something that happened between God the Father and God the Son that you actually didn't, you weren't at the, at the negotiation table. You're either in Christ or you're in Adam. And it's something that is received by faith, but it's something that's dispensed by sovereign grace. And it's something that doesn't just make you righteous in God's sight. It begins to actually change you from the inside. That's Romans chapter 6, all about sanctification. Then in chapter 7, you find that even though this work of sanctification is going on, even though we have been declared righteous in God's sight because of what Jesus did on our behalf, we still live with torn allegiance in our heart. We still have idols that are in our heart. There is warfare. One of my favorite um, Christian leaders of the past, Robert Murray McShane, said that a true Christian is known as much by his warfare as he is by his peace. If, if, you, if you feel a heart that is torn between the things of the flesh and the things of God, well, welcome to reality. This is what Christians feel like. And then in chapter 8 it says, even in spite of that, have, take heart. Have hope. He who began a good... Well, that's Philippians, but it's the same basic idea. If we are in Christ, there is no condemnation. And God is committed to us. He who foreknew us, predestined us, justified us, sanctified us, and it says glorified us. 
Because the reality that you will be transformed and will be like Jesus one day is so sure that even though it's future, Paul can talk about it in the past tense. That's chapter 8. Okay? And it ends with this great doxology. Then chapter 9, the question comes up, well, Paul, if this is, if this is the Bible, if this is what the message of the gospel is, and he says back in chapter 1 that this message of the gospel is that the righteousness doesn't come through obeying the law, but this message about righteousness coming from God is something that the law and the prophets testify to. In other words, what I'm declaring to you in the book of Romans is what the Bible has been saying all along. It's not some new idea. With that as a background, you get to chapter 9, and Paul is saying, well, he's answering this question. If this is true, why have so many Jews refused to believe this? And that's when he begins to talk about God's sovereign grace in more detail. But then in chapter 10, he says, listen, even in light of sovereign grace and God's choosing, it is still imperative that people preach the gospel and that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God and all this. And then chapter 11 more detail about who is really true Israel. Who are God's people really? And then chapter 12, all right? So then chapter 12, therefore, in view of God's mercies. And you see, God's mercies have been talked about all through. God's mercies not just to draw us away from our insanity, but God's mercies that make us righteous in God's sight when we didn't deserve it. God's mercies that stay after us and continue to work, change in our heart. God's mercies that, that continue to reach out to us in, in spite of the torn allegiances in our heart in chapter 7, right? All this stuff. God's mercies are a really big topic. And I want you to get this point. In chapter 1, the book of Romans, Paul says to the Romans that their faith is being reported all over the world. In other words, the letter of Romans is written to people who are literally world famous for their faith. And it contains the most detailed explanation, unpacking, if you will, of the gospel in the New Testament. So the first point that we need to get is you never understand the gospel, you never get it as well as you need to. And that understanding the gospel and casting yourself on the mercy of God is not just something you need to become a Christian, it's what the whole Christian life is about. Growing as a Christian is about continually getting the truth of God's grace on your heart and living in light of that. It, it's really easy, you see, to live the Christian life or what seems like the Christian life in the flesh. But back in chapter 1, Paul talks about the obedience that comes from faith. It's a very different thing. We sang that, that hymn um, last night, Rock of Ages. Remember I said it was originally titled A Living and a Dying Prayer for the Holiest Believer on Earth. And there's some important lines in that, that hymn. It says, could my zeal, no, respite, no. That means even if you could stay fired up for Jesus all the time. And then he says, could my tears forever flow. That means even if you could weep over your sin the way you should, all for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. And Augustus Toplady rightly understood that a lot, for a lot of people, the longer that they become, are Christians, the more they feel like, you know, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. I don't need God's grace as much now as I did before. It's very common for Christians to initially cast themselves upon God's grace, but the longer they are a Christian, the, the more they begin to think that, you know, well, I've, I've, you know, I need to depend on discipline, or I need to depend on accountability groups, or I need to depend on, 
you know, good habits or, or all, any number of things. There, there's a verse in 1 John that gets at this as well. It says, so we know and rely on the love God has for us. That should be a paradigm-shifting verse, and I think it is for a lot of Christians. It does not say we know and rely on our love for God. And yet I meet a lot of people, college students in particular, who are trying to rely on their love for God. It doesn't work very well. And it may look like worship, but it's not the worship that the Bible calls us to. The Bible's understanding of worship is it's always a response to the mercies of God. And it's a holistic response. It involves everything that we are. We know and rely on the love God has for us. If that's true, that the way you live as a Christian is to know and rely on the love God has for you, then what we should be doing in our worship should be helping us to know and rely on the love God has for us. And as a matter of fact, um, the Bible continually makes that point. Um, you know, one thing you may, I don't know if you've ever sort of looked for this, but um, I will throw down the gauntlet and say the Bible does not issue bare commands. The Bible never just tells you what to do. You don't have to go but another verse or two from any command in the Bible to find some truth about who God is and what he's done that, that roots that command. It's everywhere. Even this one. It does not say, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. We might put that on a bumper sticker on a t-shirt and feel like, yeah, we're really, you know, zealous for Jesus. But that's not what it says. It says, in view of God's mercies. You find this all over the place, you know, if you have eyes to see it. It's there. Christian worship is always about knowing and relying on the love God has for us. It's always in view of God's mercies, offering ourselves everything that we are to God. All right? The mercies of God, you see, have broken in. And it changes everything. It changes everything. Um, it, you know, I, I, I think I put it this way in the little outline, which I'm not going to follow, you know, um, slavishly. But, the, you know, when you think about this idea that the mercies of God should, should turn your lives upside down, it should even turn upside down your idea that you have a life that's yours anyway. And Paul says in another place, you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Now, have you ever wondered, why is it? Why is it that we resist and that our heart resists the idea that we are saved solely by grace? I mean, at one level, wouldn't that be a really good thing to believe? Wouldn't that allow you to just, you know, relax a little bit? Rest a little bit? To know, why is it that we fight against that? I think the reason we fight against that is we know that if God did everything for our salvation, then he can demand anything. We resist that because we want to hold on to our own lives. The only thing that will change your life is to see the, and, and to view the mercies of God in a bigger and a bolder way. One of my friends used to always pray at the beginning of worship. He'd pray, Lord, make Jesus more believable and beautiful to us. And I would argue that worship is about that. Worship really is spiritual warfare. You see that in this context in Romans 12, right? He goes from offer your bodies, your whole being, as a living sacrifice to do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Worship is about spiritual warfare, but it's about God doing warfare with your heart. 
saying, why would you cast your love and your affection and your hope on all these other things? Come back to your senses. Worship, it, worship is about coming to our senses. It's about spiritual warfare. It's about um, viewing God's mercy, seeing Jesus as more beautiful and believable. And I will tell you, everything that goes on in worship should be about that. The reading of the word, the sacraments, are, are about this just as much as the songs that we sing and the prayers that we pray. They're all about that. That what happens in a corporate worship service, when, when the Holy Spirit comes and opens our eyes to see the beauty of Jesus, it's always true. Jesus is always beautiful, but we don't always see it, right? When the Spirit comes and opens our eyes to see reality, praise Him that He does so, what's going on there is the same thing that's going on when the sacraments are going on. Where our eyes are open to see the beauty of Jesus. You know that hymn that we sing in RUF, Arise, My Soul, Arise. That's a communion hymn. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. It's a hymn really to be sung at communion, where there before you are the body and blood of Jesus displayed in these, in these elements of wine and bread. And what Wesley is saying is, I want my heart to resonate with that. I want the reality of what's going on here, of what's pictured here, to sink into my heart and soul so that my heart would rise, so that my confidence would be in Jesus rather than in, in myself, right? Again, you see in, in, in the hymns often a desire to connect the head and the heart, but always to connect both of them to the reality that is in Jesus. Worship should always be connected to the truth, but not just any truth. In particular, the truth of God's mercies. Okay? Now, there are basically only a couple ways to live. You can live in view of God's mercies. You can live doubting God's mercies. Or you can live rejecting God's mercies. But you are made, you are made to live viewing God's mercies. And it's what we need every day. It's why we read the Bible. You don't read the Bible, you know, just so you can check it off your list and so that God will be more pleased with you. Does that mean we shouldn't read the Bible? No. On the contrary. Every morning you wake up doubting the love of God. What is going to overcome the doubt in your heart? Well, the Scriptures. The Spirit using the Scriptures to create faith in our hearts, to open our eyes, to see Jesus, to see the mercies of God. Because if you're not living in view of God's mercies, you're either living doubting God's mercies, or you're living, in a way, rejecting God's mercies. And he says, we need to live in view of God's mercies. Offer your bodies, he says, as living sacrifice. I said, again, it's your whole being. Christianity is not interested in just your intellect. It's not interested in just your head. And I think that that is one of the distortions that a lot of people have grown up with. They've grown up in churches, generally, you know, by temperament, some people really enjoy sort of living in their head. Some people really enjoy doing things. And some people really enjoy feeling things. But Christianity is always about trying to reintegrate those things around the gospel. So when Paul says here, offer your bodies, he's not saying offer just, as your, just your body. He's saying offer your whole being. But I will tell you, for people in his day, when he says offer your bodies, that's, that's really a countercultural idea. The first century culture 
very different than, than probably the culture you live in, did not regard the body as very important. In, in a lot of cases, actually, the prevailing philosophical thought of the time thought of the body as downright evil and an impediment to spirituality. And you would hear ideas like, you know, your body is sort of what traps your soul. And, you know, salvation is when your soul is finally released from this body. And a lot of people think that that's what Christianity is about. The Da Vinci Code, for instance, thinks that that's what Christianity was originally about. Um, and then sort of the church suppressed it. Um, but, th but this idea that, that the body is bad and that spirituality is to be free from your body has a long, long history. And Paul is saying that is never what God has been about. God created a world, not just disembodied spiritual beings. Jesus took on human flesh. God cares about physical stuff. But physical stuff is not just sort of floating out there. Physical stuff should be lived in response to God's mercies. Your heart, your head, your body, everything should be offered to God, right? Um, and, and I guess, you know, I, I put this little thing. When he's talking about here, in view of God's mercy, offer yourself. Again, he's not saying offer yourself so that God will love you, right? I mean, that, that wouldn't make sense of the first 11 chapters of Romans. If the letter started with chapter 12, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. You might think, ah, oh, this is what Christianity is about. It's about, you know, dying to self. Christianity is about dying to self in light of the death of another. Christianity is not, if I die, then God will love me. It is, take up your cross because Jesus has already suffered on a cross for you. That really does change everything. In view of God's mercies, offer everything you are to God. For this is your spiritual act or your reasonable act of worship. And I guess I would say, sort of on this, this point, you know, to finish this little, little passage, worship is so much more than singing. Worship is so much more than what happens on Sunday mornings when we gather as the people of God. As a matter of fact, the New Testament doesn't really have very much to say about Sunday morning stated worship. Um, it really has talks much more about worship being all of life. And that's what Romans 12 is about. Don't, don't think of worship as just what you do on Sunday and then sort of disconnect it from the rest of life. On the other hand, there, there, are, there is an important, and I would say some, something particularly special about gathering as the people of God um, as the church under the officers that God has appointed and under... Um, the ministry of the word, they're, 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 those are important things. But we've got to be careful. What you find a lot of times in a lot of the modern debates about worship is people that just want to talk about worship as Sunday morning, you know, planned, gathered, corporate, stately worship, and other people that just want to say, worship isn't about that. Worship is about all of life. And the answer is, yeah, it's both. And they, they interact with each other. The Catholic Church has a, has a saying that the law of prayer is the law of faith, that what you do in worship ends up really defining what you truly believe about God. They, they do a better job than a lot of Protestants in understanding that corporate worship shapes and forms you as the people. It's one of the convictions of RUF that the songs that we sing and the prayers that we pray have a, have a, have a role in shaping and forming us as the people of God. Again, because you're either pointing people to relying on their love for God in what you sing and what you pray, or you're pointing people to the love of God so that they can rely on it. And it's absolutely vital that we rely on the love of God for us. There's this great passage in Hosea where um, 
you know, God's people, you know, basically pledge themselves to love God, and they, they offer this repentance saying, oh, God, we, you know, we forgive us for our sins, we come back to you. And God says, what can I do with you, O Ephraim? Your love is like the morning mist. The morning mist. How long does the morning mist last? Not very long. What God is saying is, don't depend on your love for me, because it will evaporate. And if your love for, for God is like the morning mist, you better find something better to rely on. And you have something. His love can never fail. Your love fails all the time. And uh, I, I just, I don't know how to, how to, you know, beat it into your heads. If we need it beat into our heads, that worship should be about growing in your knowing and relying on the love of God for us. Thoughts or questions about Romans 12? Or about some of the stuff I've said already? Nothing? The, um, I, I love the, the message translation. Um, says here about Romans 12, don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit in without thinking. I think that, you know, think about this for a minute. Um, one of my favorite authors, a guy named Rodney Clapp, says C-L-A-P-P. Uh, I recommend his book. If you won't agree with it, excuse me, everything in it, but he's very thought-provoking. He says that worship is practice in seeing through common sense. When we gather in corporate worship, and really any time, but particularly when we gather in corporate worship, it's an opportunity, again, for us to be reoriented to the way life really works. I think of my preaching as offering for people theological orientation to reality. It, it's not about sort of trying to set <coughs> people up. I remember when I first became a Christian, um, I guess it was around 10th grade, um, I very specifically remember thinking, okay, you know, I've got this Christian meeting on Thursday night, so I need to find, you know, I've got church Sunday, I've got this Christian meeting on Thursday, I need to find a Bible study or a small group or something around Tuesday. Because, you know, usually I can kind of go for a couple days on sort of the spiritual high that I get out of one of these little meetings. You know, have you been around settings like that? Where it seems that worship is a pep rally to, so that, you know, get you out the door and hopefully you can... Live on that for a couple days until you get another recharging. That, that's not what it's about. It's about being oriented to reality. It, it's about sort of, again, coming in contact with reality. A lot of times, you know, people will say, um, don't ever pray this. If you're ever asked to pray at RUF, don't ever pray. Lord, help us to leave all the distractions at the door and just come in here now and worship you. Worship should never be about separating you from life. It should be about bringing all of life before God into his presence and reintegrating those things and saying, this thing that's really bothering me or that's threatening to, to consume me or tell me that it matters more than God, I need to bring it before the face of God and look at it in light of that. Whether it's my fears or my dreams or my hopes, my sin, or as Brian said last night, even the things that I think are really great about me. And bring all that stuff before the presence of God and look at it. You know Psalm 73? Look at Psalm 73. It's a great, um, great passage in this regard. <clears throat> a Psalm of Asaph. He's one of the worship leaders. 
says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggle. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from the burdens common to man. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven. See, they claim to be believers. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. They're hypocrites, aren't they? Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the most God... Most high have knowledge. This is what the wicked are like. They're always carefree. They increase in wealth. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been plagued. I've been punished every morning. Now, that's, that's you know, have you ever felt that way? And if you have, have you felt like to come into worship, you need to pretend that you don't feel that way? I think a lot of worship services set up, sort of, they just set up kind of by their feel that if you feel like this, you're not welcome. Or you need to change your feeling to really be here. It's one of my concerns about a lot of the songs that we sing, or even the, the tone that we set sometimes in our worship services. Um, most of the psalms are about this. Most of the psalms are not, Lord, I thank you for making everything so wonderful and that I feel it and enjoy it today. There are those psalms that are about that, but they're not the majority. And yet, I, I think, I just think we don't reflect that very well in our, in our worship services. So we, get, we sort of model for people that the Christian life feels like, yay, everything's wonderful. We really distort what the Christian life feels like for people. That's really, I think that's a real difficulty. And sometimes we do it in the names of evangelism. That we want, you know, people who aren't Christians who will come into our worship services to be attracted to Christianity, and therefore we water it down and pretend that Christians always feel great. That's not real. That's not. That's not right. What are you? What are you inviting people into? Now, here's what's interesting. You know, you get all this stuff. And now, um, so that you know, part of the point I'm making of this is worship is about bringing this stuff before the presence of God. Because look at where it goes from, from here in verse 15. If I had said I. I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. That's interesting. Absolute honesty is not always appropriate in a worship service. He's a worship leader, and he says, if I had said all this stuff I was feeling, it would not have been the right thing to do. Uh, I, I think the implication is in the worship service. But he goes, when I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. That would be a great bumper sticker, I think. Um, <laughs> Until, until I entered the sanctuary of God. Do you see what he's saying? I, you know, as long as I was just trying to understand all this, I, I couldn't make any sense of it. Now, he's not saying once I entered into the sanctuary of God, it all made sense to me. But he's saying I got perspective. I understood their final destiny. I understand that the snapshot of reality that I see right now is not the total reality. It may look like they're carefree and everything's going wonderfully for them. But that's, not, that's just a snapshot. And so worship is an opportunity to come back to the senses. The senses. Look what he says here. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. 
How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors, as a dream when one awakes. So when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them, or, or some translations say you will scatter them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. See, now the reality of who God is and what he's promised begins to enter into what he's feeling. See, Christians, see, you need to understand this. Faith is not seeing less of reality. It's seeing more. Faith is not shutting your eyes to reality. It's seeing that what you see before you is not all that there is. It may, he looks around and he sees these people who are hypocrites, whose lives seem to be prospering. But when he comes to the sanctuary, he understands that there's more to reality than that. Particularly when he comes to the sanctuary, he sees the sacrifices, and he realizes that God has committed himself to his people. And it changes things, doesn't it? I realize you're always with me. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? See, before he was feeling like he was getting a raw deal. But now he goes into the sanctuary and everything. Now he feels like I'm the most wealthy, blessed person imaginable. My flesh and my heart may fail. Yeah, that's obvious. The first half of the psalm, they did. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Oh, I, I think that's a great passage for this point, that worship is about being oriented to reality. And, and, worship, and then, see, he writes this psalm after the experience because he, he wants even worship to sort of walk you through and work you through this experience. Right? Now, let me just say this. You can look at, at another psalm, like Psalm 88, and not, not every worship service will bring you out of despair. There are times, even in, in the Psalms, Psalm 88 in particular, that the last verse of Psalm 88 is, darkness is my closest friend. When that psalm is, is over, the psalmist is still in a really dark place. And that's important. Guys, listen, I, I do RUF not just because I like working with college students, but because I want the church to be different 20 years from now. When you all are in positions of influence in your church, I want you to bring these things to bear and say, listen, what are we doing for people that walk into our church on Sunday morning or walk into our RUF group who are feeling like their world is falling apart? Are they going to feel like they need to pretend that everything's fine? Marva Dawn, one of my favorite authors, asked a pastor friend of hers um, just to think about the last couple, three years um, of the people in his church. He had a church of a couple hundred people. She said, now think about the people in your church. How many of those people in the last couple years, how many of those families suffered some really devastating, traumatic experience? And he thought about it. He says, really, all but one or two of those families suffered something pretty huge in the last couple of years. She says, now go back and think about the songs that you sang every Sunday morning. Basically, every Sunday morning, somebody's life was falling apart. Were they allowed to, to, to own that in their worship services? Stuff, it's important. Another friend who um, teaches up at Calvin Seminary, 
and he has a little book and he has a chapter in there where he says that worship, our Sunday morning worship, or the worship that we do in RUF meetings, should prepare us for our encounter with death. And when we're thinking about what songs to sing, that should be the, the criteria. Is this going to help us for our encounter with death? Or is this going to help us live in a fantasy world where we think that death doesn't happen? My wife used to work at Vanderbilt Hospital. I don't know if you know this or not, but people don't die at Vanderbilt Hospital. They don't. Nobody dies. They don't, they don't ever talk about somebody dying at Vanderbilt. People expire. They don't die. You contrast that, you contrast that with churches, particularly older churches. The church I grew up at was this Episcopal church from the early 1800s where you had to walk through the cemetery to get to the front door. And it oriented you to reality even before you got in the doors of the church. We don't build many churches anymore with cemeteries that you have to walk through. We've relegated cemeteries to nice, pleasing, grassy knolls, you know. But again, that's sort of, sort of distancing ourselves from reality. Why so many of the hymns talk about suffering and death? Well, it's because people died at home. And it happened all the time. It wasn't something you could pretend was not real. Does worship bring you more into contact with reality? And again, reality, the, the preeminent fact of reality is that Jesus has lived and died in the place of his people. Does worship connect you more to that reality? Thoughts, questions? A couple more minutes. Let me, I'll just um, hit the rest of this, this point two, and then we'll, we'll look at point three um, next tomorrow. You might get a chance to read 2 Samuel chapter 9 before we dig into it, okay? So it's at the bottom of the page. Don't turn it over yet. I think I've talked about a lot of these, but just to make sure. Worship is about having our sanity restored. I know I've talked about that. It is a formative activity. Worship is not something that we do to get God to like us. It is a response to what he's already done. But it does shape us and mold us. Um, the passage I would use to get at that is in 2 Corinthians um, chapter 3, where it talks about how all of us, as we gaze upon the Lord's glory, are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. That as we gaze on the Lord's glory, it changes us. And it changes us bit by bit. And that, that's a, a very important thing for you to understand. How do you grow as a Christian? You grow as a Christian by Jesus becoming more beautiful and believable to you where you can actually begin to let go of your idols and trust in God. I have a, um, this kind of gets into point three here, about worship is about the expulsive power of a new affection. As a, um, a guy who lived back in the 1800s in Scotland named Thomas Chalmers, he had great influence on people like Horatius Bonar, who wrote that hymn we sang last night, Not What My Hands Have Done. Guys like Robert Murray McShane, if you've ever heard of him, highly commend his uh, little memoirs they have over at the book table. Um, Chalmers says that what you need to understand is the way, that, the way that you grow, or what you think is often growth in the Christian life, is really exchanging one idol for another. He says, you know, a lot of people, particularly people your age, the most important thing, you know, is, is you know, really life revolves around sex. I remember growing up in high school ministry, and our leader always saying, you know, basically, you know, this ministry depends on sexual chemistry. <laughs> you know, we get the pretty girls, and then the guys come along, and... You know, I was like, really? He's like, yeah. It's just a basic dynamic. Understand teenagers, right? Now, I actually think, you know, 
Christianity that can't make sense of romantic love is not full of Christianity. Okay? So Christians should not pretend that that's not part of the reality and the way God's made us. But understand this. A lot of times, he says, you know, Chalmers says, listen, you may think that that idol, because it often is an idol, that that idol is unconquerable. You may think, I could never imagine that not being the most important thing in my life. But he says, you know, it really is possible and happens all the time that eventually people get to be about 30, 35 years old and they tire of just dating around. They tire of the conquest. They begin to desire more to be settled and to begin to sort of make their mark on the world. And so often they will shift, and it may look like they're actually growing up, but what may really happen is now that they're pursuing sort of making their mark in the world, they're pursuing settled stability in life, but they haven't really grown more Christ-like. It may look like it, may look like it, but in reality they've just exchanged one idol for another. And he says it's possible, you know, to desire wealth enough that you realize that the more I just date around, it's not going to actually bring me the kind of life and a nice, comfortable house and all the stuff that I really want. And I begin to want those more, and I may actually change the way I'm living. I may change the way I'm relating to the opposite sex, because I want this other thing even more. And he says, eventually, you know, even wealth doesn't satisfy. And people begin to sort of spend all of their wealth to get elected to political office, because what they really want is power. And you may think that, that, that that's better. Some people may think that they've grown, because now they're not... They're willing to give away all their money so that they can serve you know, their government or, their, or the people, but it, it may not be that at all. It may just be changing the idol of power, exchanging the idol of wealth for the idol of power. Anyway, he says that what often happens um, in the human heart is this, that we exchange one idol for another, often a more socially respectable idol. You may think, you know, before I was a Christian, you know, I was a hellion. But now, you know, I don't drink and I don't cuss and whatnot, and you've just exchanged the idol of self-righteousness, you know, for all the things that you used to pursue. And you think that you're better, but you may not be. Particularly if you, if you understand what Brian was saying last night. Maybe your, your righteousness, your self-righteousness, is more offensive to God than the stuff that you used to think was really bad. Anyway, what he says is that the way your heart is changed is by Jesus becoming more beautiful and believable to you. In other words, the way I talk about this to get college students to understand it is the phenomenon of being on the rebound. You ever been on the rebound? You've had a crush on somebody, maybe you've dated somebody and you break up. Your heart really never gets over that until a new love comes along. Does it? You may say you're over that person, but until a new love comes along, you're really not over them. That's what happens in the spiritual realm. Until Jesus becomes more beautiful and believable than your idols, you never really get over them. Um, or, you know, to use another way of trying to explain this. When um, Cooper was three, he's now almost six and Isaac's almost four. When Cooper was three and Isaac was one, Isaac got to the point where he could walk and he could walk over and take something from his older brother. And, you know, World War III would break out. I finally had to say, Cooper, look, he's one. All you have to do is hold up something else and shake it in front of him, and he'll gladly let go of whatever he has, because whatever you hold up before his eyes looks more beautiful to him. I don't know if it's helpful to teach my kids how to manipulate each other, but, <laughs> but of course, my idol is comfort, so it brought some, some comfort to my life. But, it, but it, it really is true. The way God heals you 
is not just by exposing your idols, but by showing you Jesus in his beauty. I, I, you know, I don't have time to get into this, but look, at, look if you have a chance at Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44 is one of the, the most you know, powerful passages in the Bible about idolatry. And what you will find in the book of Isaiah is that God exposes the idols as empty and worthless. They don't really do what you're trying to do. If you're trying to get security from your popularity, it won't work. It will actually make you more insecure. Right? But... Not only does God expose your idols and say they aren't working, they're making you worse, they're making you more insecure, they're making you more anxious, but he says what you really need to understand is that you already have in the gospel what you're trying to get through your idols. This is the heart of what Chalmers is saying, that the way that you grow as a Christian, the way that you're healed of your idolatry is to realize that you already have what you're trying to get from your idols. If you're trying to get popularity or trying to get security from your popularity, you will never let go of that strategy for getting security until you realize you're already more secure than you could ever dream of in the gospel. If Jesus did not abandon you when he was suffering on a cross, what do you have to worry about? But the only way you're going to let go of whatever it is you're pursuing for security is if you really are convinced that Jesus' security is more real than your idols, right? So again, worship is about spiritual warfare. It's about coming to rely on the love of Jesus more because you realize the love of Jesus is you already have, if you're a Christian, you already have what you're trying to get from your idols. And, and so in, in worship, we're you know, praying that God would open our eyes to that reality so that we could let go of all these silly things that we hold on to. If, if you're hoping that your money will bring you peace or hope or security, it won't. But it's not enough for me to just say, quit trusting in that stuff. You can't really let go of it until you believe that Jesus has already given you peace, hope, and security. Remember a few years ago when I was on church, church staff, um, in a pretty, you know, wealthy part of Nashville, and um, we were having a building campaign, and some of the staff, you know, was really discouraged about how poor the offerings for the building campaign had been. And this one guy came in, he goes, you know, I walked around the parking lot on Sunday and saw all the kinds of cars that people drive, and I can't believe that we're having a budget shortfall. I said, what do you mean? It, it's because people are so addicted to this lifestyle of affluence that they can't possibly afford, that they have nothing left. They're in debt up to their eyeballs. And they're never going to let go of that lifestyle until they're convinced that they're already wealthy beyond imagination in Christ. It's not enough to just say, let go, let go, let go. The Bible never does that. The Bible says, let go and realize you already have what you're trying to get really important to understand that. And again, this is what the sacraments are about. This is what reading the Bible on your own is about. This is what worship, this is what singing is about. This is what prayer is about. It's about having that reality break in more and more. This is why, this is where I guess I would say there's a difference between worshiping worship and worshiping Jesus. Just, you know, when people say, man, the worship was really great, I wonder 
do they mean I got I enjoyed the music, which is fine. You know, I, I'm not one of those people that thinks that if you're a Christian, you need to be miserable all the time. And the more Christian you are, the more miserable you'll be all the time. That's not true. Um, that sort of asceticism is not Christianity. Um, as a matter of fact, in um, Colossians chapter 2, Paul says, you've died to the basic principles of the world. Do not taste, do not touch, do not handle. Why, then, would you submit to those rules all over again? They're useless. They have no value for restraining sensual indulgence. Okay? So thinking that you just need to be miserable and not enjoy things is not what spiritual maturity is about. It doesn't work. But, but understand, worship, if worship is good, is effective, it should, be, it should be helping you. You should walk out of, in other words, if, if somebody says to me, boy, that was good worship, what I hope they mean is, I saw Jesus is more beautiful and believable today. I, uh, even in the act, even during the preaching, I felt that my heart was able to let go of my allegiance to my own pride or to my own reputation. And I was able to trust Jesus. I, I'll tell you this, when I was thinking about dating. I was 33 years old before I got married. And I was 33 years old before I even dated or kissed anybody. And it wasn't because I was holy. It was because I was scared spitless. And I remember when I was, you know, contemplating asking Wendy out, I remember thinking, well, what if she says yes? And what if she says no? And both of those are really frightening prospects. <laughs> but the Lord broke in and said, Kevin, would you just leave what if to me? Because I'm big enough for what if. Do you believe that God is big enough for what if? Like we sang that song this morning. I know not where he leads, but well do I know my God. Worship should be helping you to leave what if to God more and more because you're convinced that if God in the person of Jesus lived and died in your place, what do you have to be afraid of? Right? Again, that's what I'm hoping to get at when I teach the Bible, when I preach. When we celebrate the sacraments, you see the promise not just made, that I'll be with you forever, but you see it kept. You see the death of Jesus, his body broken for us, his blood shed for us, and you see this promise has been kept. What do I have to be afraid of? When you read the Bible, you see it's filled with the promises of God. I will never leave you or forsake you. It's all about the same thing, about Jesus becoming more beautiful and believable to us. This is, this is what the Spirit is about as well. The, the, I, you know, I don't have a time to say a lot about this, but understand the Spirit always works in conjunction with what the Father and the Son are doing. Theologians, if you want a, a fancy word to tell your, your friends when you get back home, you say, I learned about the economic trinity at the, um, at the, at the RUF Summer Conference. The economic trinity is the idea of what the work of the trinity in the old sense of economics as work. The economic trinity means understanding what the persons of the trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are doing. And I will tell you this, they all are working together towards God being glorified in all things. And, and Jesus says, you know, he, he prays at, 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 the, you know, at the end of his life, he prays, Father, glorify your name. He says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Jesus, in his suffering on the cross, is where God's glory is most manifest. It's why Paul says to the Corinthians, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus and him crucified. What the Spirit is about is about 
convincing you that the glory of glories is Jesus and him crucified. The Spirit never works to distract you or to take you away from Jesus and him crucified. The Spirit does not shine his light upon himself. He operates as a spotlight to focus all of your attention on Jesus and him crucified. And you see that all through the, the New Testament. You see that in the book of Revelation. Do people worship the Spirit? No. They worship the Lamb who was slain through the Spirit. The Spirit is what enables you because the Spirit is the one who convinces you that that stuff is really true. That's why in Romans 8 it says, you know, that it's by the Spirit that we cry, Abba, Father. In other words, the Bible tells us that God is our Father because of what Jesus did. Uh, or a better example, in Galatians. In Galatians it says that God sent Jesus so that we could become sons and daughters of God. And then right after that it says that God sent the Spirit so that we could know that we are sons and daughters of God. That we could feel like we're sons and daughters of God. But the Spirit is always directing us toward Christ and Him crucified. So that, again, that Jesus will become more beautiful and believable to us. That's the Spirit's goal in worship. It's not just to give you a worship buzz. But again, don't be afraid of that. Um, I'll, I'll just close, close with this last idea. The Puritans talked about God's kisses. They said there are times when God, through the Spirit, convinces you that all this stuff that we talk about all the time really is true. There is an experience that sometimes God gives us that they would describe as God's kisses. Calvin, in his Institutes, talks about having that experience sometimes in the Lord's Supper. He said, I can't even really explain it to you, but all I can say is that at times I felt as if I'd been brought up into the third heaven. If you've ever thought of Calvin as sort of this dry, dusty theologian who thinks he can explain everything, you should read Calvin Institutes, because he says, when it comes to the Lord's Supper, I can't explain it. I can only say that I've had this experience. The Puritans called it God's kisses. And it's, and it's, it's this idea. Well, William Cooper, in this great hymn, gets at it this way. He says, sometimes a light surprises the Christian while he sings. It is the Lord who rises with healing in his wings. And he wrote that hymn after an early morning prayer meeting where a line from a hymn just struck and went right to his heart. And he was overwhelmed with emotion to believe that God truly loved him. And he said, this doesn't happen every day. But sometimes it does. Finally, that, that hymn, On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand, says, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Uh, and most people that sing that have no idea what they're singing and probably don't believe it. What that line in that hymn says, a sweet frame is an emotional state. And what that hymn is saying is, listen, we don't despise sweet frames, but we don't trust in them. You trust in Jesus. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. So there are times when, when we feel a buzz, if you will, and, and I would say if it's truly spirit-generated, it's, it's deriving, it's, it, what it's doing is convincing you that the promises of God are true and that that sense of assurance and security is setting you free. That's what the Spirit is, is about. And sometimes he gives you sort of an overwhelming sense of that. It's always according, you don't wump it up, you don't demand it, you can't create it. It's a gift dispensed. And we don't despise it, but we don't rely on it, if that makes sense. But we'll pick up on